0: This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast.
1: Welcome into B-Town. It's Bill Bartholomew here with you for another edition of Rhode Island's Podcast of Record. As always, thanks a lot for tuning in. Today, a very hot topic as we welcome in one of the co-chairs of the Rhode Island Political Cooperative, Jennifer Rourke. And of course, Jen ran in the inaugural year for the cooperative in 2020, challenging Michael McCaffrey in Senate District 29. She'll be doing the same thing again in 2022. So a lot to get to today, of course, this whole notion of a progressive civil war the senate district three race which the co-op had a candidate in and jen's own views and experiences um, running in 2020 and how they inform her 2022 campaign remember follow me on twitter and instagram at bill bartholomew it's been an interesting couple of weeks for your organization the rhode island political co-op um for a number of reasons. Some of it is just sort of like shock value stuff that's been playing out in this so-called progressive civil war. But I think the big picture is more how 2022 is shaping up with, with the candidates that <clears throat> you're putting forth. I just want to read. This is from yesterday's Providence Journal. We're taping on the on the 12th. <clears throat> neither pol- nor, neither party nor PAC, Rhode Island political co-op, defies definition. The Rhode Island Political Cooperative is something new in ocean state politics. It's not a political party. It's not a traditional for-profit political consultancy. It's not a political action committee, nor a worker co-op, nor a charitable advocacy organization of either the 501c3 or 501c4 variety. Its members pay dues, leading many observers to speculate that it could be organized as a 501c7 social club for tax purposes. Nope. So, what is the Renowned Political Cooperative?
0: <laughs> okay, so none of the above. Yep. Um, so, technically, we are a nonprofit corporation. And I know that sounds a little crazy, but we are just a consulting agency that we don't make money off of the actual consulting. So, we just provide services to candidates who are normally um, dismissed by you know the party or other organizations we just provide services everything from campaign plans to messaging to training um we have a very very small staff um and the dues goes towards paying that staff so we're just just so small we're not a social club I don't know where that one came from. You that's, guys aren't like playing
1: bingo on on a regular basis in the tall no. basement or anything. I,
0: I, if I play bingo, I'm going to Foxwoods to play bingo. <laughs> but no, we don't play bingo. We, we're not in the basement anywhere. We're not a
1: social club. So I remember when this when this first launched, there was a press conference at the state house, and my question was, and I believe the only people there were myself, Steve uh, Alquist of Uprise, Rhode Island, and Kathy Gregg of the Projo. But I remember asking a question about is the purpose of the co-op to sort of spark a new bloodless revolution, It which is how the, the 1930s, basically the Democrats took control of Rhode Island politics for the next near century. And I remember Representative Walsh standing up and saying, um, well, I don't think it's revolutionary to have a a, a living wage or have health care for all. And, and so the question got, got kind of lost in translation, I you know, but now Matt Brown's and Cynthia Mendes campaign video comes out. We're going to have a revolution in Rhode Island. Is that the plan? And I'm not talking about, you know, people storming the state house. I'm talking about is the plan to have a political revolution where there could be a new century of political rule here in the state.
0: Um, that's not my plan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, no, um, it's more about giving people just the average person the yeah. ability to run for office. It's been so long where our voices are often ignored. I was working three jobs at one point. I was unloading trucks at three in the morning. I was going to one job and then going to another. And there are people like me who are struggling every day and we don't have a voice. So why not give an opportunity to an average person to bring their voice to the state house? Because you can't sit there and tell me you're fighting for a living wage when you don't understand what it's like to have that living wage on a daily basis. Like if you don't understand it, you're not going to fight for it. So it's just, we're trying to give our neighbors a voice. That's it. It's the state has been run by people who are more focused on helping friends out or helping out these corporations. And they forget about the mom and pop shops that are, you know, the friends of, or the parents of their, their kids, friends. And they forget that their neighbors are having to decide between putting food on the table or getting their medication for the month. And it's, it's unfair because we are the ones that suffer. So it's just giving us a voice. That's
1: it. Yeah. And. That makes sense because i I think a lot of people don't realize just how many Rhode Islanders will you know will stay here in Rhode Island because this is the the topic at hand, but how many Rhode Islanders struggle to just make ends meet in quote unquote normal times never mind covid nineteen but it's it's a very large chunk of the population um full time workers, even people working multiple jobs have a really difficult time, so there's that push, if you will, to shape policy in a way that can benefit those folks. And one thing that comes to mind, of course, is minimum wage increase. The other things might be taxation for larger or for higher income earners. But what is it that the ultimate goal is? If if, let's say you have a a, a co-op majority in in the general assembly, what are the first policies that you'd like to see enacted?
0: Oh, I have a couple. (laughs) Um, if it was up to me, our living, our minimum wage would be at $19. It actually, it should be higher if we actually went with um, the cost of living and stuff like that. Our minimum yeah, wage like would be about $23. Yeah, yeah, it's like $23, $25. Um, but I would increase the minimum wage. But at the same time, I would implement a graduated tax system for the mom and pop businesses because they tend to pay a higher amount um, in tax percentage than the big corporations. Um I would also make sure that the bigger corporations pay their fair share in taxes. Um, and then I would make sure that people and everyone gets all up in arms, you know, they're going to raise my taxes unless you make $465,000 a year. This does not apply to you. But the people who pay four hundred and sixty-five dollars or make $465,000 a year need to pay the same amount in tax percentage as everyone else. It shouldn't be that the person making $30,000 a year is paying 12.5%. And taxes when the person making 465 is only paying 5.99% that it needs to be equal. Um, and then I would make sure that they clean up the port of Providence, um, Mm. because the people in Providence are really suffering because of what they've allowed to come into the city. Um, and then I would, um, make an quality education, a constitutional right. You know, our Mm. schools are failing us. We pay so much in property taxes and our schools are falling apart. So I would make, um, a quality education, quality public school education, a constitutional right. And I will look at the funding formula and change it.
1: Yeah, I think the funding formula is something that a lot of people across the spectrum are are, or should be or are certainly taking a look at. There's no doubt about it. Um, it, Let's talk about this progressive civil war, because first of all, the title is a joke. I made it like a a joke T-shirt concept. I mean, it's the only thing you can really do is laugh at it because it's an immediate invention. People in progressive politics or the Democratic Party, as long as I've been paying attention, have been bickering for forever. It's not yeah. as if, you know, um, I think a great example is to look at 2018. I never once saw Matt Brown and Aaron Regenberg campaigning together Correct. in a situation where the quote unquote the progressives were running a candidate at each level. Um, obviously, Regenberg performed a lot better in the, in the primary than than Matt Brown, and some would say that they could have helped each other. Some have said no; they would hurt each other. Uh, there's a lot of bickering. Sometimes Senator Sam Bell will throw barbs at people on online that in, in the Progressive Party. And just being around, I think back to last Columbus uh, Day slash Independence Indigenous. Indigenous People's Day, um, when there was a protest on the highway where people, in my opinion, in one in very foolish maneuver, cut the fence and ran and stormed onto the highway and blocked the highway with trucks and set off fireworks and what I thought was a really immature protest. And at that site, literally seconds before it happened, I remember seeing people that are DSA and other activists being like, this is, cr- what are you doing? You know, so there was division even in tactics on the ground in terms of activism. This isn't anything new. Why is this all of a sudden becoming an issue? Why do we have people like former Representative Regenberg, you know, writing op-eds, uh, former co-op member Representative Brandon Potter writing op-eds, and th- this sort of back and forth. And then at the same time, I know this is a lot, but why did the, pr- the co-op put out a statement following the special election in District 3 last week that didn't really congratulate Sam Zurrier and instead sort of played the blame game, um, which to me was more of a jab at the Working Families Party and Brett Jacob?
0: Oh, OK. So
1: <laughs> yeah, well, let
0: <laughs> Progressive civil war. I'm not in a battle with anyone. So they they can battle amongst themselves. Um, I think the problem is people don't understand. And instead of asking questions, they make assumptions and then they just run with those assumptions. Um, For me, I am a, I'm a Democrat. I believe everything in the platform. I don't get to pick and choose. Like this is what I believe in. Um, And some people believe that you need to you need to be able to play both sides, but they don't hold the people with the power accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for me, I like to hold people accountable for their actions. If I mess up, I mess up and I want people to come to me and say, Hey, you messed up. Um, this civil war was started by someone else. Like for the op-ed that um, Regenberg and Potter, the two of them, um, I just think it was unfair that it was allowed to be, published without even coming to us. And I get it, it's an op-ed, but there was no fact checking. Um, so I just think that was unfair. And I, I think that escalated the problem because instead of coming and saying, you know, what are you thinking about doing this and why you're doing this? And how are you, how do you work? They just came off these assumptions. And that was, that was the beginning of their attacks. Um,
1: This episode is brought to you by Elmwood Songwriters Club, presented by B-Town. It's a monthly showcase featuring seven artists from all around the region. With the order drawn at random, each artist performs two songs. You can find details about when the next event is here in Providence by following me on Twitter and Instagram at Bill Bartholomew.
0: So let's see. There were so many questions in there.
1: Yeah. Also, Uh the Senate (laughs) District 3... Yep. The, the, the um, message that came out, I think that caught a lot of people off guard, myself included, where you have this great race, five good, really good candidates, a lot of progressive energy. The co-op got a lot of young voters out from my observations. And then yeah. to send a, a letter out that, that talks about the corrupt political establishment, but doesn't really congratulate Sam Zurrier. I think a lot of people were like, what's going on here? What's yeah. the end game?
0: So that I, I know Gina wanted to personally congratulate him. So she, she put out her own press release. I yep. think the, the reason why there was so much um, that why the statement came off so negative is because all the things that have happened, all the messages that I was receiving personally, um, people were telling me as a black woman that I'm not educated enough to do what I do, um, that I was too stupid to see that Matt was using me Um just a lot of nastiness that was coming behind the scenes from people from other camps. Um, not, you know, I'm, I'm happy. I congratulate Sam on his win. You know, he really, he, he has a name out there and he's been doing the work for a long time, but I think it was all the nasty messages that I received as someone who was chair of the co-op, um, from other people. And it was, you could see the way that people were, were collaborating to come and attack me on a personal level. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think that that statement came out of frustration. So I do want to apologize to Sam. Um, I hope he understands that I am happy that he won. I would would love for it to have been Gina, but I am happy that he won. I just hope that, you know, he stands by his message where he says he wants to talk to the 31% of people that did not vote for him. Um, So I'm hoping he's willing to have a conversation so that we can talk about it but I do want to congratulate everyone else in that race, but I just wish the negativity, you know, the nastiness, I was told I need to be corralled and that I need to be handled. Um, <laughs> so.
1: But insiders uh, from other camps that, that were in the yeah. race were, were they other progressive camps or like, uh, you know, were they, th- Is that part of the sort of that split, that factioning that state that took place in the, in the progressive wing.
0: I think that was the beginning of that anger, Uh, this, this whole entire, this district three race, that was the beginning of, I don't want to say a division. It was just more of a a disagreement. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think people questioning Gina's intentions because they're like, Oh, she hasn't lived here that long or what it doesn't matter how long you've lived in a place. If you're willing to fight to make your community better, that's all that matters. Um, But the the messages were very, very nasty. Um, So yeah, that, I think that's where that message came from. And it wasn't really directed towards Sam. I think it was directed towards, um all the
1: other people. So. Understood. Um you ran a very competitive race in 2018. There's no uh, pardon me in 2020. Um it feels like it was 2018, oh. but it was like a year ago, but um you're you're sort of reintroducing yourself into that situation. You were the victim of some horrendous uh, racist attacks by some scumbags, frankly, uh online. Um, and you, and again, you ran a very competitive race in against somebody who is entrenched in terms of being in in state power. Where do you go this this time around? What sort of tactical moves do you take, and what did you learn from from twenty twenty that you'll apply strategy wise, and also you know your own ability to have a teflon suit on, so to speak, <laughs> when it comes to like the morons out there. Yeah,
0: um, last year was was emotionally draining. Um, between COVID, I was doing distance learning with three kids. I was working two jobs. I was trying to maintain the co-op and then we had all the candidates running. Um, and then that message. And it still it bothers me to this day because I still don't know where the messages came from. Um, plus I have a guy that sits outside my house and watches my house on a daily basis. So it's like I'm dealing with <laughs> all of that. But I can't give you all my strategy for the next cycle. Just know that I am, I'm not a negative campaigning person. That's not who I am. So don't expect that from me. I think it's more going to be on his record um, because his record stands for itself. Like If you voted against this, it's out there, Um, but I'm not giving up. So last year for 2020, we did, we were in the midst of the pandemic. My kids were home. I have three kids. Um, I was doing my 3 a.m. job. I would come home. I would do co-op work, and then I would go <laughs> and campaign all day, and then be back at work at three in the morning. And I think for me, it was just trying to maintain my livelihood was more of my focus last year. Trying to make sure my grandmother, who has dementia, that she was okay. Um, I think that was my focus last in twenty twenty, and this time is going to be a little different. My focus is going to be justice campaign. Like I I know I have multiple jobs, but um, it's going to be more about making sure that I I win this time.
1: What's the biggest issue that people might be surprised about that your district faces? (laughs) Sewers. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Sewers. Um, There's a whole community. It's called Governor Francis um, that they were forced into getting sewer lines And the first phase, I believe it was $3,000 for the first phase. And then they upped it to 5,000 and then it was 8,000 and it's like $22,000. And it's a loan that you did not sign up for. And the interest rate in the end, you end up paying $34,000 for sewer lines. And the majority of people over there are like, no, like we don't want the sewer lines. We've had, you know, our septic systems for years. Um, So I had to hear about that a lot. It was, it was a lot, um, And I still have to hear about it, the repaving and, um, you know, people are just like, I I can't afford to live here anymore because on top of their mortgage and trying to survive, they have this loan that they didn't agree to. So that was, that was a big thing. And then our schools, you know, everyone complains about the schools. Um, but it's mainly, you know, our buildings are falling apart just like in Providence, um, buildings falling apart and the mold issues. So, but mainly the sewers, lots of sewer talk.
1: Wow. That's, that's so fascinating about the, the sewer situation. It's, it's, I think it's unique to that area that, that, that governor Francis area. I, I can't, you know, in terms of the, the maybe in Wickford or I'm trying to think off yeah. the top of my head where there there are similar sort of forced loans, so to speak from an infrastructure standpoint, but um, and then obviously, yeah, the school is Warwick vets and so on and so forth. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, one thing about Warwick that I always fantasized about, not always, like in the last few years, I was like, it'd be amazing if there was somewhere to put route Two a, you know, like I know you'd have to like declare eminent domain or like plow through CCRI. It might have to wait until we have hovercrafts, but it traffic wise, do you get the sense that traffic in Warwick is like, is it, is it just me or is it getting more congested in the heart of, 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 of route two and, and Avenue and, and that, that sort of part of town.
0: Yeah, it's, it is. Um, I moved here in 2015 and it was much calmer back then. Um, and I think the biggest problem is people don't understand how rotary rotaries work. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Oh, so that's a, that's a struggle. And I'm from originally from Massachusetts, so I'm used to rotaries. Um, so when the rotaries were implemented, People didn't understand it, um, and I think with and it's nice to see businesses come to Rhode Island. And I think with the the uptick in businesses on Route Two, it's just going to create more chaos. Um, but I think we're doing okay. <laughs> I think if we figure out the rotary situation, Warwick will be okay.
1: So yeah. yeah, well, let's hope we can get past that. I mean, there's, I, I'm surprised that hasn't received more scrutiny. That the design is. Bizarre. Um, I know Jim Hummel of the Hummel Report was taking a look at the landscaping, which was, you know, like a disaster and all kinds of wacky contracts. So.
0: so, there's a rotary from in East Long Metal, Massachusetts. It's like the world's one of the world's most dangerous rotaries. And that was just a normal drive for me. So, it's like there's eight different entry points and there's exit points. And coming to Rhode Island and seeing that one, it didn't, it didn't bother me. But if you ever get a chance, look up the rotary in East Long Metal, Mass., and you'll just your jaw would drop because yeah, next, it is, it's very
1: unique next time I'm in the Northampton region. That's where we'll go. Oh, uh, oh yes.
0: You have to go to NoHo. You have to.
1: Absolutely. All right. Last question. You know, yesterday I was on WPRO and we were talking about the, the Columbus statue and the, you know, the true history of Christopher Columbus, which is not only is he a murderer and a thief and a horrible governor and a rapist and so on and so forth, but Um, He was also basically a fairy tale in terms of the founding fathers created him so that the US would have a founding figure that wasn't a living person. He's like the American King Arthur, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And then he was reinvented as an Italian American hero at a time where Italian Americans were oppressed. And of course, as I'm talking about it, there's people who are saying, oh, this is a great conversation. We're glad to hear it. I'm also getting nailed. People are saying, oh, you're a socialist, you're a progressive, you're this, you're that. How do we get to a point where we can have ideas that are trying to have an honest conversation about history, whether it's Rhode Island's ties to the slave trade or things that happened in 2005? Um and not have people immediately jump to the idea that if you're talking about these things and they're a part of even a campaign strategy, uh, in terms of just being honest, that you're automatically labeled as, you know, some kind of revolutionary that wants to like literally plow through the state house and 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 take down the the independent person on the top.
0: <laughs> uh, I think the biggest thing is that we do need to have the conversations, and they are difficult to have, um, but it starts in our schools. You know, we can't sit there and celebrate Christopher Columbus for being this great person who discovered America. And you, you can't discover something that's all, already there. Yeah. Um, but I think people need to learn the truth. And I think we have a tendency to glorify um, our history. And this is going to turn into a whole CRT conversation that people also don't understand what CRT is. Um But I think when it comes to teaching the true history of America, U.S. history, whatever, we need to be honest about it. Like we have a country that was built on the backs or stolen from um, the indigenous people and built on the backs of slaves. Um, And we need our children to understand that. I had to learn about things like the Tulsa massacre um, from my mother. It wasn't taught in my school. And my mother learned from my grandmother and it should be like, This is real. Most people don't understand that Central Park used to be something called Seneca Village, and it was a thriving um, African-American community because it's not taught in our schools. And we're taught that America is great and it's this beautiful country and nothing goes wrong, but that's not real. And our books say the same. and And someone told me, and I don't know if this is true, so don't. Don't quote me on this, but
1: the the lawyers, uh, stop stop listening right now. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Lawyers, please don't listen. Um, That our books are printed in Texas and down in Texas, they have a tendency to whitewash our history and then they send the books out. So that's what Mm -hmm. our children are learning. But I think we need to have real conversations about what America really is, where we came from um, and where we hope to be in the future. So,
1: yeah, it's the only way we're going to build towards something that's more authentic. And I'm I'm amazed that this has become the type of, of conversation. And I even saw. Some elected officials yesterday putting up some, you know, uh, sort of pr- provocative tweets and Facebook posts saying, like, "Oh, you know, if you're if you stand with me and uh, celebrate our real history, happy Columbus Day to the great explorer." Um, this was Senator Jessica De La Cruz uh, from up in Woonsocket, you know, and I situation- I had to scream about it on the radio. It's like <laughs> you're you're not doing anything here to help the cause of anybody. You look like and sound like a fool and what you're doing is just further pigeonholing the one of the opposition groups because I consider the the co-op and progressives one opposition group and the republicans another opposition group you're just pigeonholing your your yourself and your organization if you will into this sort of like huh kind of category yeah. why Why do that? Why, why, yeah. why not have a real conversation about this stuff? It, it doesn't, it doesn't affect you in a negative way to do that. And I can't wrap my head around. It. I'm just, <laughs> lost. <laughs> I,
0: I wish people would sit down and have that conversation. Like my husband who is, um, he's four years older than I am. He didn't know about the Tulsa massacre and he's Irish okay. Italian and German. Like he had no clue. And it took for me to sit down and talk to him and say, this is what, what happened. This is why when, Trump went to Tulsa it was a big deal. Yes. Like this is why and he he didn't understand it until I explained it to him and it's not like he was upset. He was just like damn like how come I didn't learn this in school.
1: Yeah, it's amazing that people don't learn about Snowtown and Hard Scrabble here yep. in in Rhode Island and people don't learn about, you know, the, the reality of the Narragansett planters yes. and the reality of the they, there's a baseline Education on oh well, the water, the ports were deep in Bristol and Newport, so we kind of were involved in the slave trade. Anyway, how about those Red Sox? You yeah, know, like, like, <laughs> like wait a second, this yeah. is fundamental and doesn't mean it people. I don't know. We this this is a whole nother conversation, and yeah. we're gonna be doing some story, some some pods on on the critical race theory uh oh. phenomenon coming up in a few weeks. I've got some guests, some school committee members that are going to be coming on and just sort of this. This trend that it provoked that is just like, I just don't know where people are coming from. I can't wrap my head around it. Like, all right, you don't want to have your kid wear a mask in school. I think you're, I think you're wrong, but all right, I kind of get where you're coming from. On this one, like,
0: what? I just don't get it. It's, and I don't think people understand that critical race theory is a graduate level course. It's a 400 right. level course and trying to explain that to the people. They're like, I don't want to hear it. Like, I don't want my kids yeah. to learn about racism. I'm like, well, if my kids have to deal with, with racist stuff on a daily basis, then you need to learn like, Bingo. but it's not, I, I would love to, I'm going to listen to that. I can't wait. Yeah, but stand um, by. <laughs> yeah, I just, interesting. I, Oh, that's going to be fun for you. So, <laughs> but yeah. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B town.